Digital Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Tonight's broadcast is not live. However, I hope you'll enjoy this pre-recorded program. Media scientist, producer, and protege of the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson Thal, is here for the full two hours. In Hour 1, the life and times of one of Canada's greatest minds, the first major communications theorist to examine how new media and technologies have the power to transform human nature. In Hour 2, Nelson stays with us to discuss, among other things, how President Trump has used COVID-19 as a cover to bring down the U.S. Federal Reserve. Nelson is recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the science of communication media and process analysis. His expertise has afforded him the opportunity to define law terms to the Federal Court of Canada and develop a television series with the late Dr. Timothy Leary. While a graduate student studying at the University of Toronto with Professor Marshall McLuhan, Nelson became a McLuhan protege and served as the president of the Marshall McLuhan Center on Global Communications from 1990 to 1995. He served on the board of directors of Torstar, Stanley Media Inc., Peace Arch Films and Entertainment, and other publicly traded media companies. He's a lecturer, author, and has been a consultant to companies in the United States, Russia, Canada, and Britain. Nelson Thal, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing well, keeping out of the way of the viruses and out of way of God's wrath. <laughs> Indeed. All right. You know, you and I have not talked at length about Marshall McLuhan. You, of course, were his protege. You studied under Marshall McLuhan. Later, you became the official archivist for Marshall McLuhan. I just wanted to talk about his contributions, his theories, what he might think of the mainstream media today. Let's start off with his main theories regarding the effect of the mass media on the culture. Sure. Well, I think um, th- this is a, a great topic to go into. It's a, it's a deep subject, and so um, we're going to simplify a lot of things uh, as much as possible. But um, I think what we should note is McLuhan was basically a scientist. He approached everything in a scientific thinking fashion, and he created and developed. He was the Einstein of media. He discovered the laws of media. Uh, Einstein discovered the laws of relativity, McLuhan in his own right, and it was recognized by the New York Times, etc. They called him the, a media guru and, and, and that he was uh, – they compared him with Einstein, Pavlov, and, and Pasteur and others in writing. The New York Times did. So it's not a reach. It's just that people don't really fully understand the laws of media just like they don't understand the laws of relativity. They know Einstein is famous, but – if you really sat them down and asked them to write a couple of paragraphs on it, they'd be lost. And I think the same is true with McLuhan. He was a media scientist. His laws of media are just fantastic 
fantastically been uh, proven practically by I've worked as a uh, uh, when I went out into the consulting world and put his theories to a test his laws let's call them and see and and they they work and so he is uh, certainly uh, one of the major thinkers of the 20th century of course, we're all familiar with uh, the medium is the message. And actually, the first printing went out, there was a typo. Didn't it go out as the medium is the massage? No, what happened is McLuhan never did write a book, the medium is the message. He, he It first came out, uh, he talked about it in 52 on radio, and he wrote some special essays. But it really hit the public when he published in 1964 what was called Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. And the chapter one of that book is called The Medium is the Message. And then after having made a, become very popular many years later, some guys sat down with McLuhan and put out a second version of Understanding Media, and they called it The Medium is the Massage. Ah, all right. That clarifies. So, so what, yeah. what does that mean, The Medium is the Message? Well, it it, well, let's look at the medium as the massage, as a, really, and we can get at that. Uh, what does a massage do? It works us over. It displaces our sensory ratios, alters our, us, and causes us to uh, redo a reset. And um, and uh, we have a big business. Massage therapy is a big business. It's important today, and it works us over and alters us. A massage alters us. It alters our mu- muscles and it alters our thinking. And we do it to relieve stress. And media also have effects on the psyche, on the conscious of man, and uh, on their sensory ratios, and cause them, therefore, to see and perceive the world in ways which they wouldn't otherwise have perceived it. And so what happens is the um, means by which we communicate has a huge effect on how we think and perceive the world, and it's not necessarily the content of those media it, the, being able to use a telegraph and instantaneously send a message to the other side of the world had far more meaning and effect than whatever we typed on that telegraph. And the same is true for telephone or television or any technology. The effect of the medium is far greater. Not, he's not saying the content isn't important, but comparable relative the media effect of the medium is vastly greater than anything you can do with the content was McLuhan concerned that the owners of the system which is a phrase that you've used for many years was he concerned that they would use television uh, to to control the masses well um, the answer of course short answer is yes uh, what, was, what was this question again was he concerned yes or, that, that the owners that, that the well, owners, yeah he, I'd say that he was very concerned because it had already happened with many other previous media uh, radio is of course I mean uh, let's go back McLuhan um, McLuhan really did talk a lot about conspiracies. And he believed that the bottom, uh, the top-down conspiracy, which we can get to, is plays catch-up to the bottom-up conspiracy effects. 
Now, what does he? What does that mean in effect? You know, well, poetry communicates long before it's understood. So some of McLuhan's phrases, and when I speak to you, like you know, um, whatever you cl- you claim I said, it's true, but uh, it's not my said. It's just that I have a good photographic memory. I can read something McLuhan wrote and say, okay, well, this is what Marshall would say, and it's not my opinion. I'm almost getting you giving you wrote word for word right out of his books because I was his archivist. I had the ability to read and understand and things. I could read 600. Uh, we, you know, when I was working on my PhD with McLuhan, I would be reading through um, 13 inch and a half books you're reading through a day. And I could remember pretty well after the end of the day, if you were to say, where's this phrase? I had the ability to go and find it. So I was valuable to McLuhan because McLuhan wrote 600 essays and about 22 books. And even he wasn't quite sure that he didn't even remember some of the times where he wrote certain things. And um, I became a, became a resource for the New York Times journalists afterwards um, because I had this ability. I worked for Walter Williston, who was a top lawyer in Canada. I had that ability as an archivist to be able to read vast amounts of literature quickly and retain a good portion of it, or at least the most important parts of it anyway. So I was able to help McLuhan, and I developed a great relationship with him, got to know him very well. And um, uh, You mentioned that he uh, that he was he believed in conspiracies. You were yeah, about he, to, yeah. Conspiracies. And basically, you know, in Forces magazine, when he was asked about the Kennedy assassination, he said without batting an eyelash, and he's quoted, well, of course the establishment killed them. And I remember thinking when I heard that, I realized, yeah, that's how I feel. And McLuhan just summed it up and put it so well. Well, of course, the he didn't just say the establishment killed Kennedy. He said, well, of course they did. I mean, because when you think about it, you realize how many people have the ability to murder the president of the United States. What organizations, global organizations in the world are necessary? And so you realize, well, of course, <laughs> who else do you think would kill him? Okay, so how did he arrive at, I mean, he hit this particular worldview that he had about yeah. the owners of the system and the establishment and so forth. Yeah, that was, was his turn. Was that informed by, by uh, communication, his communication theory? Did one feed into the other? Yeah, well, McLuhan, remember, got to the pinnacle of worldwide academia. Uh, he was like a pyramid of academia. He was the top, top rock, the top rock right at the top. <clears throat> he kept it all together. He was the guy on top. And so he had a lot of influence and he understood what was going on. And, you know, he wrote that the, the arts and science, he lamented that the arts and sciences were in the pockets of the secret societies. And he named them. Papacy, Rosicrucianism, uh, Masonry, and uh, Jesuits. So he named these secret societies, some of the top ones, in writing, in his, uh, in his articles. He didn't do it in his books, but in his articles, in his essays, uh, published in, in, in university journals. Remember, there was a lot. He published not just 22 books. Long before his books, he published vast amounts of university 
published uh, in university journals in the St. Louis University, U of T, Harvard, all the different universities around the world. That's how you become part, you get to the top of worldwide pyramid at the top. So he was publishing, and all these universities were interested in publishing his stuff. Is that, that, is, that, is that why he, I mean, was somewhat That's of a... a fame. Right, but was his were his views on the secret societies and so forth, the, this conspiracy, the, the top-down, oh, was that the why they canceled his PhD program? I mean, you were about to get uh, your PhD. Not only that, they, they tried to... They canceled... They threw all his research, and every student of his, they threw off out of the UAT. After he had his stroke, Mrs. McLuhan had to get... It's public. You can look it up in the papers. He had to get... She got... Woody Allen and Pierre Trudeau to put pressure on the UT not to close down the Center for Culture and Technology. And then once he was dead, that's it. Nobody could rise up and stop them and they canceled it. They got rid of the Center for Culture and Technology and renamed it the McLuhan Program in Culture and Technology. However, folks, there's no one can do a, a you can't do a Bachelor of Arts degree specializing in McLuhan. There's no chair at the U of T, McLuhan chair. I mean, you can't do a PhD on McLuhan. The guy's name's in the French dictionary. He's one of the great social scientists of our era. Anybody involved with social media is being influenced by McLuhan and the UAT has shut him down. That's that's typical of what's going on in Canada. And and it's going to resonate with this. We won't get into it with this. Uh, this recent plague is going to absolutely decimate the country. Well, let's just stick with McLuhan for a moment and we can talk about the other later. But media scientist Nelson Thal uh, with us and he studied under Marshall McLuhan, was the official archivist for Marshall McLuhan and... Uh, so you were in the PhD program uh, before it was was canceled. So what was yeah. it specifically uh, that that had the uh, the powers that be, as you say, kick everyone off campus after McLuhan uh, had his stroke? Well, uh, if you <laughs> if you get into <laughs> you know if you don't want anybody to develop a bomb that's going to that's going to uh, can take out the world or decimate North America continent, then you make sure that Einstein stuff doesn't see the light of day and doesn't get talked about or taught. So what was right? it? What uh, they, they what McLuhan stuff would do would open people's minds, um, get them out of their dreamlike sleep, um, start to recognize television as a serious drug, start to realize that if um, uh, literacy, since literacy destroyed Homer, then rock is going to destroy literacy. Explain that. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, that's just that what he's saying is since the, since the pre-electric, since the mechanical world, the mechanical world, <clears throat> literacy is a mechanical invention of the Gutenberg press. We're not just talking about uh, uh, writing with your hand, uh, uh, a, um, uh, just a, a non-printed handwritten script is easier to memorize than it is to read. You can't get in touch with an author's mind. But the mechanical world of the Gutenberg press destroyed Homer and the Greeks. 
Rome defeated Greece with the invention of the phonetic alphabet and lightweight papyrus. Remember, the Greeks did not learn to read and write. It was beneath them. They let their slaves learn to read and write. The Romans conquered Greece and brought the Greek slaves and made them into their children's tutors and taught them to write and read. And if you marry the phonetic alphabet with lightweight papyrus, then you can build roads and send armies at a distance because you can send couriers every 15 minutes, which is what they did with lightweight messages. We, with 26 letters, the phonetic alphabet, a tremendous technology, could say everything we had to say to our armies in the field. The Chinese, they needed to learn a thousand symbols before they could say what we could say with 26. So we were way ahead of them and built an empire around the world. The Chinese, why didn't they ever build an empire? Because their phonetic alphabet was not as streamlined and fast as ours. Getting back to what made McLuhan so dangerous, you were saying that he understood of the, the power of the medium and how it could be used uh, and that, that he was opening our eyes. So just expand on that. Well, and uh, he also understood the Bible. So he understood the top down, the big picture. He understood that uh, Satan, the devil, Revelation twelve nine has deceived the whole world and deceived the nations and that there's a top down spiritual conspiracy that was put in place by Jesus Christ when he overcame in Matthew, he, uh, he defeats Satan. So how come Satan's still God of this world, as it says in 1 Corinthians? Why? Because in order to have a law, you've got to have a punishment. And, uh, Christ uses Satan as his punisher. And he has him on a leash. And we know at the end time, he's going to use Satan to bring in his tremendous anger against mankind. And of course, McLuhan understood that. So McLuhan understood the, the spiritual conspiracy leading into the physical realm. And he identified the secret societies were close to that spiritual power. And that's what were the secret societies that he talked about. And that's dangerous for the uh, for the university. That's dangerous. They don't want people talking about that. You'll lose your advertising. You'll lose your support. You'll lose your money. It's like the media. They're controlled by the advertisers. Find out who, the owners of the system own the advertisers. So they can dictate what you hear. Andreas von Bülow, head of German CIA, wrote a book about CIA and 9-11. It was banned here in Canada. It was banned in the United States. Why? Because it exposed the, what was really going on in 9-11. So McClellan understood and taught these things. The banned books. He talked a lot about the banned in Boston books. That was a term he used. So he understood the top-down conspiracy. And he, could, he, he understood how the media was, uh, he called Satan the great electric engineer. Because technology is used to do, to brainwash us and put us to sleep. Television completely eliminated our civilization. It's a drug far worse than LSD. So it's, you know, these things is what McLuhan was getting the university to talk about. They didn't want to talk about that. So that's why. And we, we just have a couple minutes here before the break. We'll start the, this conversation now and then con, uh, okay. continue after. But what... Do you suppose 
McLuhan would have had to have would have to say about the mainstream media today had he lived to see it? Would he have been surprised by it, or did he predict it? The the state of the mainstream media. Oh, he many cases predict. It wasn't difficult um, as a media science, and it would be a less than a third year course to be able to project that people are go- T. S. Eliot. He would reply. McLuhan's answer to that is he would quote T. S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot said Western man is like a man on a gurney gurney attached to an IV. Hmm. So the whole society, T.S. Eliot said, is just put to sleep. And so they're sleepwalking. I mean, we've got, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Ultravox, great song, Sleepwalk. Remember? Came out in the 80s. Yes, yes. He's talked about man sleepwalking, especially Western man. They're asleep. Of course they're asleep. But now, who, what yeah. about advocacy journalism? Would he have had anything to say about that? Well, look, um, Marshall was interested in dialoguing and exploring ignorance for discovery rather than tossing around his knowledge for argument and display. The latter is debate. The former is dialogue. Most American tea promotes debate, not dialogue. Survivor, uh, pick a date. I mean, everything, everything is debate in the United States. And Jacques Ellul pointed out, who McLuhan talked, uh, respected and used in his work, uh, the great uh, French sociologist Jacques Ellul wrote the book Propaganda. He said propaganda begins when dialogue ends. So if you end dialogue with debate, then you, it's all propaganda, all and right. that's what we have today. All right, Nelson, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and continue to talk about Marshall McLuhan and um, other matters right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Hey, if you're a fan of my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, consider becoming a premium subscriber. For less than $2 a month, premium subscribers receive two bonus commercial-free episodes every month, plus access to the vast back catalog of Conspiracy Unlimited. That's more than 370 episodes. To subscribe, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes. Coming, Nelson Thal is here for the full two hours. Right now, we're talking about the life and times of the late Marshall McLuhan, who, as it turned out, was a conspiracy theorist and very much involved with intelligence agencies around the world. We were talking earlier about McLuhan's interest in conspiracies and secret societies, and, and he had kind of a conspiratorial view of the world. Did he have sort of a a rolodex of intelligence agents did he did he go did he move in those circles yeah I, he moved in in very wide circles and actually the circles moved around marshall they came to him he didn't have to move that's the beauty of being the man at the top 
they came to him in droves. The king of Jordan came to the to 39A Queens Park Crescent East Toronto. They they all came in. They flew in from all around the world. Kings, queens, prime ministers, um, CIA agents, KGB agents, ONI agents, Secret Service agents, French intelligence. (laughs) Everybody was there. What did they want from him? Information. They wanted to study his mind, find out what he thinks about things. Uh, his works were not, there wasn't a big index of his works. So, um, um, you know, Marshall sometimes would whip off an, an essay, classic stuff, hand it to Mark Stewart, a secretary, type it up, she'd send it out. And sometimes he um, wouldn't keep a copy. And I used to fly down to St. Louis for Marshall, with, sometimes without his knowledge. We were looking uh, just to get an article. We knew he was it was sent out, but we didn't have a copy. And I went and got it out of the university in St. Louis in the library. Why there? there. Why St. Louis? Well, Marshall had it. Just had so happened. Marshall Marshall was at many universities. It's just that St. Louis University, the the academic press there, was publishing him. As I said earlier, what made McLuhan famous in the academic world is, remember, within it, for those who aren't in university, the university has its own little culture, its own little coterie um, of an audience, and they read university publications, and there's a lot of academic journals, and each college and each main discipline puts out an academic journal, and those top people, thinkers in that field naturally get published by the university press you know there's university of toronto press Mm -hmm. and st mike's has its own press the different colleges at the university sure sure. and they publish and they'll publish articles and those get distributed around and academics around the world will read the academic journals of st louis of toronto those are centers of english literature concordia at the at Concordia University, a, a classmate of mine, Dennis Murphy, set up the communications department there. Okay, so, so he was being courted by spies, by, by spies. spies. Well, operatives, too. Operatives, not just spies. What's the difference? They always talk about, what's the difference? Well, you know, some operatives uh, are people working for the CIA whose job is to um, put together an operation to kill, to, to, to spread grasshoppers in Cuba. An operative be running the money. Like Bannister was an operative during the JFK assassination, right? Right. Clay Shaw and these guys were operatives. They worked for the intelligence agencies, but they weren't spies. They were giving messages from headquarters and told to get some guns together and okay. start training guys to invade Cuba. And, you know, they're operatives, not spies. Did anyone the- ever try and recruit McLuhan? Oh, I'm sure they all tried to recruit McLuhan. But McLuhan was unrecruitable. <laughs> he couldn't be. You couldn't recruit McLuhan. Was he being McLuhan, was he being spied on? Yeah, he was. Oh, we'll come back to that. But let me just say this: that the McLuhan has had his own intelligence agency as the top, because he was fed. McLuhan read everything written in the English language. He what? How is Marshall, that possible? He was a voracious and very fast reader. That's how it's possible. Oh my. Because 
was like he was like the uh, <laughs> he was you know he was a, a, he he had the ability to really just consume the phonetic alphabet of books and read he was he read at high speeds high speed reading and comprehension he had magnificent well i can see why that would be useful to a, a an intelligence agency why they would want to recruit someone like him but back to my well, other question McLuhan had more intelligence his his McLuhan's intelligence agency had more intel than all of the rest of the world's intelligence agency well he had his own intelligence agency tell me more about that who were these people and and well, anybody to, to, with a tape recorder is an t- intelligence agency as McLuhan true, said true so McLuhan had files and McLuhan had people sending him in and filling his files from around the world university professors people who were English literature majors ambassadors Everybody who was interested in intelligence and was uh, was uh, interested in uh, comprehension and wondering what's going on and keeping in touch with the with the mass. There's a new mass group was created. The masses showed up. So mass man, discarnate mass man, right? Right. Disco, right. So what sort of inf- intelligence was finding its way into McLuhan's files? Well, hey, listen, you know, when you have university professors and CEOs, take today the executive as dropout. When you get a lot of executives, that's the name of one of his books. uh, When you get a lot of top executives from the Pentagon and elsewhere dropping out and wanting to uh, sit and talk about what the heck's going on. That, that And uh, there's a lot of corruption that they can't stop and a lot of other nonsense going on, misuse of media. Media is being abused, not used properly. And uh, they want to talk. And then McLuhan was like a, a, a global uh, psychiatrist. Everybody was wanting to lie on his couch. So you were his because archivist. Did you see it? You were his archivist. Did you see any of that intelligence? Oh, of course, I saw it all. Remember, what happened was the marshal of the CIA, what happened was this, the Central Intelligence Agency in, in the late 50s had been consulting with um, Gordy Thompson of Bell Northern Labs and Barrington Nevitt, who co-authored the book Take Today, the Executive's Dropout, and many other, many academic essays and articles uh, Nevitt and McLuhan wrote. And um, so the CIA was knew and, and understood that uh, we're going to have to do something with our files. We've got files, we've got microfiche, but we haven't got optical card readers in use yet. We've got them. And they're not 100% accurate, but next year, the next few years, they will be more accurate. What are we going to do with this intelligence are we going to keep it in files are we going to take pictures are we going to take pictures and optical card readers and move it into other documents how are we going to handle it with which whichever way we use what's the most important way to do it what's the best for us as an intelligence agency and what patterns can we detect there that right now we can't see because we only got the speed but once we get into the computer we're going to see patterns that we never saw before and McLuhan sold that to them to the Intel CIA via the Department of Education because the CIA turned to the Department of Education and sent a letter and there's a letter on file that McLuhan had and the letter because he did project 69 for the for the Department of Education so after that when the CIA came to the Department of Education they said 
we're going to send McLuhan in to talk to you. And so McLuhan went in, and they said, how are we going to open our files to just one man? He'll see it all. And the Department of Education sent a letter to the CIA saying, Dr. McLuhan's archives are vastly wider and more deep than anything you've got at the CIA. Oh, my gosh. So, again, back to what you saw. What did you see? They're just collecting data from around the world. McLuhan's doing it, too. But McLuhan's got a head start on them because he's got a name. Right. But what did you see, Nelson? I can't go into everything that I Okay. (laughs) I had to ask. I had to ask. Much to go through, but I can tell you this i think that's when i started to become converted and 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 read the bible because everything that is said in there it's in the files as to what they're trying to do all right i've got to take a time out we'll uh, pick up on that point on the other side nelson thal media scientist talking marshall McLuhan, right here on the conspiracy show don't go away Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with media scientist Nelson Fall, protege of the late Marshall McLuhan, his official archivist. So I'm trying to imagine all of this intelligence that's coming to McLuhan from his, as you described them, his own intelligence network, his own intelligence agency. And they're sending him stuff, feeding him stuff. Is this all being stored on campus, in like like filing cabinets, sensitive information. Well, some of it's stored. Remember, as, as I said, some of it's stored uh, at the university. Some of it's stored at um, at his office. Uh, things come in. He takes things from the office home and home to the office. So there's no problem with that. But um, you know, he's sort of like two two one Baker Street. Uh, Sherlock Holmes had all his stuff there. He never kept the door locked because he he felt that if anybody tried to steal it, we'd find out who it was. You can't fool us. And uh, so there's no need to keep it really locked. And, you know, that's the way Sherlock Holmes had it. And Marshall was like that. He had it under lock and key. Don't kid yourself. The, the filing cabinet had a lock. But it wasn't any high, sophisticated electronic alarm system right. or anything like that. It was just a, a simple uh, filing cabinets that are fireproof. Okay, but did he have information that could have brought down governments, the Canadian government? Well, I, I think he, he, had, he had lots of information that could have brought down the Canadian government about what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, but um, I, I think he knew what his limits were and the red line and what he could get away with. But he kept a lot of stuff uh, with his students and hidden from the public. That's for sure. Only only grad students got to be to go to that level. I'm just thinking, though, in terms of let's say JFK uh, assassination research, which is your passion, your forte, uh, right. for over 50 years. Now, I mean, is 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 it possible that there there are Let me just hang on. Are are there bits of intelligence in Marshall McLuhan's collection that could, that have never been, that have never come to light that could shed new light on the assassination? Well, there there could be, but I would imagine that it's been sanitized by now, that's for sure, since it was all sold to the government. Ah. That's probably 
why the government bought it. So they could sanitize a lot of it. But, you know, listen, Mar uh, Mrs. McLuhan, in the letters of Marsha McLuhan, published a lot of letters. And if you read the letters, there's all sorts of things in there that could cause a lot of problems. And that book is given mass circulation. So it's not as if there's something that hasn't been really gotten out there. His letter to his, McLuhan's letter to the uh, Royal Highness Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands is in that book, and it's a barn burner that could bring down the whole the whole <laughs> club of the Isles. Well, tell me a little but, bit about what what what's in that letter. Well, McLuhan basically exposes the ruling elite for being a dictatorship. Uh, and a group of people who are not interested in the common man. Prince. He's insulted. He's insulted by their, by the way they, they their attitude towards the uh, useless eaters. Right. And the one, and they want to bring the population down. They want to control the population. So McLuhan, look, McLuhan had read the UN documents. Yeah, you know, Rich, all this is in the UN documents, all this stuff. It's right out there in the open, just that nobody reads it. <laughs> did did Marshall, uh, did he have an interest? Uh, did he research the Bilderbergs, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations? Did he write about them? Absolutely. And that letter to Prince Bernhard was, because, was when he was invited to Bilderberg. And by the way, McLuhan went to Bilderberg. He got on the plane at the last minute. He didn't take a passport. He got through the customs in in Denmark or wherever he went to. For, it's in Bilderberg. I, I think it was in Denmark that year. Uh, it would show on the letter. I don't recall right now the exact address where he sent it to Bilderberg. But in the Netherlands, he's the king of so he sent them this letter, and he went all the way there without a passport and walked in on them and basically denigrated them and told them how they're just a bunch of old men from Iron Mountain, rearview mirror, hardening of the categories, out of touch with what's going on, and that they're just absolutely making a mess of things in their control of the money supplies and the big operations of the Western world. He basically, it was the Bilderbergs. He was before the managers. And he just basically said the managers of the system told them that they were out of touch. And a lot of the managers were also sprinkled with owners. So he went to the top and met with the owners of the system and the managers of the system at Bilderberg. And that letter, it was in six, 1969, and that letter is published in the letters to Marsha McLuhan. You can look it up. It's in the index. All right. It's a great letter. Okay. I'll uh, take a time out, come back. I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Marshall McLuhan barnstorming the Bilderberg meeting when we come back with Nelson <laughs> Thaw. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Uh, before we get back to my conversation with Nelson Thal, get on up to my website, strangeplanet.ca. It's been completely redesigned, and it looks great. Special thanks to my webmaster, Rick Forgus. It's much, much easier to navigate. And once there, again, strangeplanet.ca, scroll down to the bottom to Inner Sanctum. That's my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Click on that, 
and register. I just need your email. It takes but a second. Once you've registered, you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month delivered right to your email inbox for free. Strangeplanet.ca. Nelson Thal stays with us. And uh, just a reminder, he will be with us into the next hour as well. We're going to finish our discussion on Marshall McLuhan. We're learning all sorts of things we didn't know about uh, this amazing Canadian. You mentioned going into the, uh, the last break that he stormed into a Bilderberg meeting. Uh, now, what did they, why did they invite him? Did they know he was going to go in there and, and slap them around? Well, I, I I think that they were so worried about him that they were prepared to put up with whatever they got from him. And they wanted just to feel him out on their idea of viewpoint on life. Uh, and um, the, the uh, oligarchical, aristocratical view of the ruling elite that he ran into there... And um, he, I guess they were p- probing to see, the purpose of the meeting was to probe and see whether he would play ball with them. Because what he had that was getting out there could be radioactive and a threat and cause a brush fire in the establishment. And so they were testing them to see if they could get him on their side, so to speak, and... and uh, Get on board the train, the Malthus train. And did he ever get invited back? No, he never got invited back, and I, I, he, I, he'd be surprised if he was. He didn't want to be invited back. He wanted to show his disdain for their attitude towards mankind and the fact that they're not just useless eaters. Every person is made in the image of God, Imagio Dei, uh, whereas the oligarchs, they still believe that man is a, an animal, no different, and therefore has no rights and doesn't have the right to think for itself. And they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle that got out with the Reformation when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the wall of the Wittenberg Church and Rome lost its power over our mindsets. Before we finish the hour, what other things was McLuhan trying to to tell us about the impact of technology in the mainstream media on the culture? And I'm talking about the negative impacts here. If if he were standing or talking to us right now, what would he be what would he be telling us about what to look out for in terms of the power of let's say television? Yeah, I what he would say is he would say Take the laws of media as I've developed them so that you understand that these are the natural laws of media and start putting together your own, it's called a tetrad. They're made up of four. The four laws of media are the four. They call it a tetrad. Make up your own tetrad and make yourself aware of the tetrad on each technology and therefore draw from that an understanding the grammars and effect it's going to have on your sensory ratios, your sensory topologies and your mindset and your ability to perceive the world. We had hundreds and hundreds of years of a technology that put us into a visual space of immense magnitude compared to the other senses. We went up into heavy visual space as a matter of fact <clears throat> we are, we got so the effect of the phonetic alphabet and high speed printing made us to the point where visually we were so stressed our view of reality was so skewed and was so wrong 
because of the stress on the visual sense alone, Louis Pasteur was thrown out of the medical profession for claiming that invisible bacteria was making his patients sick. That's only about 175 years ago, Rich. Not long ago, you and I would be put in jail for saying that invisible bacteria was making us sick. That's how crazy, that's how skewed and out of whack and unrealistic Western man got because of the phonetic alphabet, the Gutenberg Galaxy, and that's what made him famous was his book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, which talked about that that devious, invisible, uh, nefarious, he called it, a nefarious and insidious effect of these technologies. So So that was what was behind media science and media ecology. So the the owners of the system that, that run the TV networks, what is it they understood, obviously, what McLuhan was talking about? They didn't want their secrets divulged, but... Their, their subliminal effects. They didn't want their subliminal effects affected and made public. And McLuhan wrote the foreword to the book Subliminal Seduction by Wilson Brian Key, which is a key book that people should be, if they want to know, get the book Subliminal Seduction with the foreword by McLuhan. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the subliminal seduction and, and the power of the subliminal message in television. Yeah. Well, right today, they've got it so subliminal that they're able to alter our emotions from the microwave towers. Hello, yes. Colonel Beasley. Just read Beasley's book, Colonel Ted, Colonel uh, uh, called the Oblivion. Okay. Uh, what else can you tell us about subliminal messaging in television? Well, it started with Coca-Cola in the fifties. They started to put uh, subliminal messages into the ads, and their Coke sales doubled. And they put pictures of deserts and pictures of cactuses. And all sorts of subliminal messages, and it made people feel thirsty, and they went out and bought Coke. And what happened was a guy by the name of Dr. Petzl, P-O-E-T-Z-E, had a machine called the Tactistoscope. This was written up in a a university paper. Uh, There's a book on it about uh, Petzl and his Tactistoscope because he took people who were very dream-friendly, Always had lots of dreams. And he went and he designed images that they would have never seen in their lifetime. And he started to flash them because the tactistoscope flashes images into your mind at high speed, higher than your ability to consciously see it. And he would flash this. It's a tactistoscope, it's called. And he would flash these images and he'd study the people's dreams. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the images started to come out in these people's dreams. In the morning, they would take their dreams, they would say, this is what I saw, this is the shape, this is the color of the things that was flashed in front of them. So they started to realize that subliminal imaging had very, very, could affect purchasing behavior. And again, these are, this would be a single frame in film that you couldn't really even pick up with the naked eye. It would go by so quickly, but your subconscious would pick it up. So right. they were inserting these images, uh, surreptitiously, single frames. How, how do you suppose they're, they're, I mean, if that was 60 years ago, what are they doing now with subliminal messages? Well, they're doing the same thing that they've been doing all along, Richard. And uh, it's a two, it's a, it's a one-two punch. Number one, in order to get you to 
be docile enough to believe some of this nonsense in the 50s and 60s, they put fluoride in the drinking water, as a, which made the mind docile. And they're still doing that today. So that part of it hasn't changed. But they put it over our lifetime, it went into the TVs, it went into the advertising, it went to all the media, it went into the radio stations as subaudible images, subaudible audio, subaudible, they called it subaudible images. Uh, you, they changed the middle C frequency. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Uh, the Prince of the Power of the Air changed the frequency of middle C. That goes by unannounced and not talked about, except media scientists are aware of the change in middle C and what that means, and that had a big effect. Right. Well, I've, I've done an entire episode on my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, about about just that. Uh, listen, we are out of time for this hour, so hang on, Nelson. We'll come back and we'll move on to uh, to other matters uh, in the news, including uh, Trump and the takedown of the Fed and, of course, what else? COVID-19. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.